between the hours of 9 a.m. and 1 p.m., thousands of television commercials are developed and targeted especially for toddlers and preschool children. In fact, in recent years, television, video, DVD programming have actually been developed for babies, and the years are getting younger and younger. In fact, I learned recently there's now a cable channel dedicated for infants. I assume, I guess, they're, they're watching this. The evidence is fully substantiated. By the age of two, a child, they have discovered, they being the researchers, can, can identify brand names and not only identify things by their brand name, desire them over and above those things without a brand name. So if you think you have a problem with a 13-year-old or 14-year-old, go all the way back to the age of two. In fact, by the age of three, the child will be capable of pressuring his parents to purchase items based solely on peer popularity rather than the need or even the inerrant value in the item. So little children are now telling their parents and advertisers are catching on. Advertisers, they, they've caught on for some time. They're telling their parents which automobile to purchase and drive, where to go out to eat, uh, where to go to school, what to put in their lunchbox when they go, and what to wear as they head off to school. There is an education taking place that overpowers their education. Little wonder that a, more than $1 billion is spent annually on advertising, targeting preschoolers and down. From automobiles to entertainment to clothing to food. You see, our culture has identified a particular defect in our human nature and has defined marketing strategy to manipulate it. It is the desire to not only fit in, but be viewed as superior to those around us. In short, status is golden. What you have matters more than who you are. And two-year-olds are picking up on it. This defect, of course, continues to play out as children get older and then turn into young adults and then older adults. It goes by any number of names. You can call it classism. Classism is what level of society you belong to. Or racism, what nationality you came from. Culturalism, what it is about you that causes you to fit in or not to fit in. And it is the Christian who approaches these issues with an utterly different approach and perspective. Why? Because we understand that God never intended the Bible to adapt to contemporary society. In fact, we would expect culture to view this book as anything but relevant. God never intended the Bible to adapt to contemporary culture. He intended the Bible to create an entirely different culture. A new culture made up of many ethnic groups, but one culture, one race, one holy priesthood, 1 Peter 2.9. That's why James redefines in rather stunning words what pure and undefiled religion is. How many of we ask the average person on the street, what do you think really genuine, pure religion is? They'd rattle off all kinds of things. No. Administrating the needs of orphans and widows. In other words, genuine Christianity loves and cares for people who cannot earn your compassion. They have absolutely nothing to offer you. They can't enhance your reputation. They don't add anything to your resume or your portfolio. Your love and care for them is sheer grace. Now, James goes on in his letter in chapter 2 to these scattered Jewish Christians to deliver another rather mind-blowing, culture-shifting, culture-creating statement. His statement's in verse 1. He writes, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. You could render that partiality or prejudice. In other words, social cliques 
and Jesus Christ do not mix. Paul wrote to the Romans in chapter 2, verse 11, saying, God is no respecter of persons. He's no respecter. There's no favoritism. Jesus Christ, you see, my friends, was anything but a snob. He never walked around with his nose in the air, even though, mind you, he is the son of God. If anybody had the right to look down on anybody, it would be him. Yet he was as kind to the Samaritan woman at the well as he was to Nicodemus. He was as gracious to the woman with the issue of blood that came and touched the hem of his garment as he was to Jairus who was standing there impatiently waiting for him to go home with him to heal his daughter. He was as available to blind Bartimaeus as he was the rich young ruler. He gave the outcasts and untouchables as much an offer of salvation as he gave to the scribes and Pharisees. His overriding concern was the condition of their soul, which had all value. See, James is writing here to Christians, and he effectively says, do the same thing. Think the same way. Partiality and Christianity are incompatible. Now, it was interesting if we dig a little deeper here, which we'll do, to discover that the original word translated personal favoritism. Yours may be rendered partiality in verse 1 as a compound word, and, and it never, ever, not once, appears or occurs outside of the New Testament. It's as if God the Spirit created a word that he expected this culture to live out. Never expecting the world to live it out. And if you take the words that are squeezed together and you expand them out, a wooden translation would literally be, don't hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ with the receiving of someone's face. It came to refer early in the etymology within the Christian church to somebody that was accepted based on their face. That was literally how how attractive they were. Which is interesting because even in the coming of Jesus Christ, who could choose how he would look, chose to be unattractive. A rather ordinary looking Jewish man. So much so that if he walked into the room, Isaiah said we wouldn't be attracted to him. We wouldn't esteem him. We wouldn't think he was anything special. The word developed into the idea of giving someone attention and favor based on their status, their education, their race, their wealth their rank, regardless of the merit of their character. And I love the way the Amplified Bible cuts right to the core of what James is saying in our language so we understand. And it's, it's, it's offensive, it's confrontive, but that's why we've come here today. The Amplified Bible expands it this way. Stop holding the faith of our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with snobbery. Don't be a snob. And the reason he has to say that is because they're snobs. You're a snob, and I'm a snob. I'm glad you came so I could tell you, you're a snob. (laughs) And so am I. We we tend, we drift in in that direction. So this is one of those culture-shifting, culture-creating declarations. Something is going to radically change for the believer who wants to grow up. Stop being a snob. I have an article from the John Hopkins University Press I've had in my file for some time highlighting the writings of Hesiod, a poet who lived about 750 years before the birth of Christ. He was just revered. He and Homer along, those two guys were just revered. Whatever they said was it, you know, gospel truth. He wrote, and I quote, love those who love you. Help those who help you. Give to those who give to you, never to those who do not. I like that religion. I can do that. I'm going to try, but I believe I can. Ladies and gentlemen, that's how the world works. That's, that's life. And you might think, well, get over it. No, don't. Jesus Christ effectively turns that thinking upside down and right side up when he says effectively this. You've heard it said, you know, do unto others as, as they do unto you. You've been quoting Hesiod for 750 years. But I say to you, 
Do unto others as you would like for them to do to you, even if they don't return the favor, which is Christ's idea in Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. Listen, this issue is as real in the 21st century as it was in the first century when James was writing this letter. Don't fall back. Don't drift back. Now that you're redeemed into classism and racism and culturalism, don't bow to status. Don't pant after brand names. Don't focus on the social register or image or appearance. Because if you do, you will not be prepared to reform the corresponding attitudes and actions of partiality and prejudice and pigeonholing everybody into stratified categories. See, those attitudes and those actions, in the mind of James would reveal sort of as exhibit A that this person may be in Christ, but he is not growing up in Christ. And I say that he may be in Christ because James is using an imperative in verse 1 that can literally be translated, stop. Stop it. Stop thinking that way. Stop holding your faith in Christ with an attitude of partiality. He said it because they were doing it. See, the problem in the church he pastored there in Jerusalem, and the church was very young, but they had a problem right off the bat. Jews didn't like Gentiles. They'd get up in the morning and they'd pray, God, thank you, I'm not a Gentile. And Gentiles, of course, didn't like Jews. And it exists in every generation. In fact, every culture I have traveled around the world enough to to see it, the prejudices between the Mexicans and the Puerto Ricans. Very real in this community. Between Taiwanese and mainland Chinese. Between Hispanics and blacks. Between whites and blacks. Between the Japanese and the Chinese. Between the Hutus and Tutsi tribes of East Africa who are killing each other. And the press has come up with this horrible phrase they've coined called ethnic cleansing. It's killing because of prejudice is what it is. This is, this is receiving someone by their face. This is favoritism based on status and image and race and wealth and whatever. Well, then what happens? We have people from every tongue, tribe, every nation. They, in the same communities, they get saved. They come to faith in Jesus Christ. They come into the assembly of believers, and they, like everyone before them, they may have been redeemed by Christ, but they still entered the church with baggage. Listen, we have all come to church carrying the luggage of our former lives. And there are ways that we think that have to be absolutely reformed. Why there's power in the truth of God's word and the menu is balanced as we go through books of the Bible. Because why? We import into the church our former education and the world's perspective on brand names and value judgments. It ultimately gets transferred onto people who get classified and codified and categorized as who's who and who's not. According to James... Our unity and acceptance and love has nothing to do with our face. It has everything to do with our faith. But this kind of favoritism was taking place and the church is brand new. Jesus Christ, the clouds have barely come back together. The Holy Spirit's barely descended. The church is created. 3,000 people come to faith in, in Jesus Christ and you have the very first church division. And the complaint begins to rise. And what is it over? It is over the prejudicial, preferential treatment in the church toward Hebrew widows over the care given to Grecian widows. You see, it didn't take long for people to unpack their baggage in the the church sanctuary. It didn't take long for the the church to develop first-class seating and coach seating. The Jews were in first class and the Gentiles were in coach where people sit closer together than they do their spouses. I, I know, it's, I saw it again. I flew to New Hampshire on coach, and I'll tell you, uh, the, 
The last time I sat that close to anybody, I was proposing marriage. In fact, all of Southwest, unfortunately, is coach and, and the lady next to me and I, we alternated sitting up, sitting back so we could, we could breathe. Somebody actually told me, I was standing in line, I think it was at the airport, they said, you know what they do? They're, they're talking about creating a different seat that'll save three inches. And I thought, how? Is that possible? And he said, well, what they're going to do, they're literally thinking about bending them. That's not a seat, that's a saddle. Speaking of seating arrangements, James moves from his opening statement in verse 1 to a seating problem in verse 2. Look at the scenario he creates for us. And by the way, the implication most Greek scholars believe was that this had happened. For if a man, the class condition is he has, comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes. Now stop a second. Before the usher seats them, get this picture in your mind. The language of James' scenario indicates that these men come in while the church service is already in progress. The word translated assembly, you may see in your footnote, it's the word synagogue from synagogue. James also uses the word ecclesia over in chapter 5, which we typically think of as church. The use of both words indicates even further that James was written early in the history of the Christian church and the canon of Scripture. At any rate, these two men come into the service late. The service has already started, proving this was a Baptist assembly when they got there. The first man is wearing a gold ring, and you need to understand that someone wearing gold rings would be showing off status and wealth, in fact, based on how many rings they were wearing. So James is presenting a man of rank and power and money. He's actually using a word that literally means gold-fingered. The wearing of rings for men and women in both Jew and Gentile cultures was acceptable. However, a man of wealth, we know from history, would wear rings on his left hand and on every finger. His fingers would be golden, so to speak. This would be an ostentatious display of wealth. And if you weren't that wealthy and, and you, wanted to, you wanted people to think you were wealthy, like when you go back to your high school reunion, you could actually rent rings from shops in Rome where you could have one on every finger and show to people that I really made it. The Roman philosopher Seneca wrote in the first century that wealthy men adorned their fingers with rings and gems were arranged on every joint. You know, this became a problem. And in the practical outworking of the church, they had to deal with this, and they did. In fact, Clement of Alexandria, a church leader serving about 100 years after James wrote this letter, he actually urged, and the leadership decided that here's how we'll show that we are distinctive. They urged the believers to wear only one ring to keep from any kind of ostentatious display of wealth. You see, they had a problem. And here comes this guy. They had a problem with bling all the way back to the first century. You never thought you'd ever hear me say that word. But I, I just, the picture came to my mind. And I asked my daughter, in fact, I had to ask her yesterday, is that a bad word I've heard it used? She said, no. I said, so if I say the man had bling, I won't get kicked out of the church. She said, I don't think so. I mean, he had it. James also says in verse 2 that he was wearing fine clothing. The word for fine is lampros, giving us the transliterated word lamp. He's literally wearing shining clothing. More than likely, he's wearing the shining, expensive, white garments that wealthy Jewish men wore in this culture. And he comes late to church, maybe on purpose. We don't know. But this guy is decked out. He comes into church looking like the gemstone cowboy. And so he shows everybody, I'm it. Everybody, look, I've arrived. And what does the church do? Well, we'll look at it in a minute, but first let's deal with the poor man. He comes to, to church late too, maybe because he didn't want to be seen. It says here in the text, verse 2, that he was dressed in dirty clothes. He was a poor man, the word for poor 
Tokas is a word we've used of a homeless man. It isn't that he didn't have a lot of money. It's that he had no money. See, in this scenario, James is creating two polar opposites in every possible way. And by the way, the problem isn't that one's rich and one's poor. The problem is how people responded. There's another contrast here in its clothing. James says the poor man's clothing was dirty. The word could be rendered filthy. He can't afford a bath. He got his clothing probably from the nearest alley or the trash bin. He literally stinks. He's beyond down and out. Unlike the first man, he has no connections. He has no money. He has no status. He has no face. He has nothing to benefit the Christians gathered in that assembly. And by the way, he is not coming to church to get money. The implication, most scholars believe, is that both the rich man and the poor man are unbelievers and they've come to the assembly. They might not have known what time it started, just as many of you don't. (laughs) They're coming in because they're curious. We've heard about this and we want to know what's going on. Now watch what happens. Verse 3. You pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place and you say to the poor man, you stand over there or you sit down here by my footstool. You pay the rich man special attention. James says, you pay him special attention. Literally, you stare at him. To help us understand the word I think would be good to use would be gawk. You gawk at him. Everybody stops breathing and starts staring. Look who's here. Everybody is watching him. One Greek scholar says the verb has the nuance of covetousness. And I thought that was very interesting. The nuance of envy. In other words, everybody's looking at him and saying in their heart, man, does he have it made or what? Wow, I know he's an unbeliever. I probably shouldn't think this, but I'd like a little bit of his life. To this day, Greek Orthodox churches in Greece don't have auditoriums like we do with pews and chairs. There are some chairs along the walls for those who need to sit down. There are some benches up front, and those are reserved for prominent guests or prominent members. In fact, the early practice was to rent them out. You literally bought your seat. They came over to Europe, England, came then by way of England to America. If you've ever been to an old church, you'll notice they have gates, little gates at every pew, and you'd have a key. You bought it. You have the right to that pew. Nobody else can sit there. That's your pew. That's your seat. I know none of you feel that way, but this is the way it was back then. You'd open that door, and you'd go in, and you'd sit at your pew, and they cost A little bit differently as you move toward the front. The expensive seats were down front. Unlike today where they would be where? In the back, right. Down for you guys have the best seats in the house. You're thinking, I'm not sure. But you did. And if you had to buy it, it would be the most expensive seats available. The poor people were segregated in a way in the uh, English and American churches so that they couldn't even see the pulpit and the pulpit couldn't see them. They're just tucked away. Pastors in early American history made news when they offered to free up the pews so that anybody could come. You read the biographies, as I have, of John Wesley and George Whitfield, who created scandalous news in the early 1700s by saying, okay, if they can't get in because they couldn't afford to buy or rent a pew, we're going to go out in the field and we're going to preach to them out there. And so thousands, tens of thousands would come to hear them preach. One historian uh, spoke of, uh, of Wesley preaching the gospel to 30,000 coal miners at dawn one day in the fields and their tears of repentance were streaming white trails down their cold, darkened faces. They couldn't get into church. They weren't connected. They didn't have money. They weren't considered respectable. They were different. 
They don't belong in here. They don't fit. You go back through history and you find in every generation the problems exist. And within cultures, I mean, can you imagine the stain on our own culture? You go back in American history just 50 years where a white man wouldn't drink from the same water fountain as a black man. They didn't eat in the same restaurants. They didn't shop in the same stores. They didn't swim in the same pool. And they certainly, for goodness sake, didn't go to the same church. I've often wondered in my mind, where were the pastors? Where were the expositors just 50 years ago? Where was James chapter 2? I'll tell you where it was. Right here. It hadn't gone anywhere. In fact, do you know how wonderful it is to have in the services, as I've looked at and just pan the audiences, all three hours I know from talking to people, we'll have, we'll have in here white people and black people, we'll have folks from India, we'll have Mexicans and Portuguese and Chinese and Japanese and Taiwanese all in the same services today. And I want to tell you that may this spirit grow and serve as evidence that cultural norms can be toppled by the gospel of the grace of Jesus Christ. We even have Carolina fans and Duke fans in here. They're not sitting next to each other, but they're in the same room, which is a step in the right direction. Now, I mentioned earlier that an usher seated these men. I need to correct that in order to show you how deeply rooted this problem was, and I didn't want to bring it up until now. You'll notice if you look at verse 3 that the speaker is unidentified. He isn't actually an usher. You would think of the ushers who help people find a seat. Maybe you were helped today. In James' day, we know again from church history, the usher would have actually been someone appointed to meet visitors, just as today. But we can't be sure exactly when the practice started. But we know in the early church, it was actually, now get this, the deacon that made sure people were cared for in the service. It was the deacon who ushered people to their seat. It was the deacon who kept the service free of any disturbance. In fact, if anyone came in late, the deacon's job was to write down their name and charge them a fee. Okay, I made that part up, but everything else was true. (laughs) We know from history that the pastor would appoint the deacon assigning them to help the latecomer to be seated so that the pastor would not be interrupted as he delivered the sermon. In fact, you go all the way back to the 4th century, and it's interesting, and I read uh, one early church document that revealed that one of the reasons they had the deacon do that is so that when a wealthy person came in late, the pastor would not be tempted to stop the service and direct that man to the best seat. So they protected one another. Because that has no business in the church. So I say all that to tell you that the problem isn't an unspiritual usher. This is a problem with the character of church leadership. That it's made its way down to the pew. In fact, that never really changed, but it's now exacerbated because of the the attitude of the man in the pulpit and the deacons. Elders and deacons were as partial and prejudiced, and so the church is not the reformation of culture, it is adaptation to culture. I wonder if the average church, you know, could, could today begin their services on you know, Sunday morning by effectively saying, now while the instruments play, please stand up and shake hands with at least two people who aren't in your clique. James provides a summary of this scenario, he writes several things. Verse 1 is the first. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? See, this is the summary of what's going on in the church. James, first of all, says it is nothing less than sinful thinking. He says, how evil is it to come into the assembly and make all these distinctions among yourselves to create classism in the church? And he just calls it what it is, evil, injurious, harmful, 
Call it what you will. It's not right. Partiality and favoritism and prejudice, none of that is a face issue. It's a soul issue. It's not a skin problem. It is a sin problem. So the guy with money and the guy with connections gets the chief seat while the poor guy gets his clothing dirtied even more by having to sit on the floor or maybe on undoubtedly weary feet he's told to stand over there by the wall, keep out of the way, and you just stay there and everything will be fine. The church, ladies and gentlemen, must be, must be the one place on planet earth where this is wiped out in here. And then we demonstrate it out there, the same attitude. The church should be the place to demonstrate how to think correctly, how to place value on people correctly. And James has already upset the apple cart by starting with orphans and widows and now poor people. This is convicting, isn't it? Ken Hughes, longtime pastor of the Wheaton Bible Church, told the story in his commentary on James of a poor woman, a committed believer, moved into town. She was on the other side of the railroad tracks from the church that she thought she'd visit. She'd heard it was evangelical and believed the gospel. So she went and visited the church. She stayed around afterward and talked to the pastor about joining. She could tell he wasn't too happy with how she looked and talked. Wasn't too sure, he wasn't, that is, that she'd provide anything for the church. So he told her not to be too hasty, and I'll just read, but to go home and read her Bible every day for an hour and see how she felt about the decision after that. She did. A week later, she was back. She waited around and laughed at the service and approached the pastor again, who was a little irritated. He thought he'd taken care of the problem. But said to her, well, I'll tell you what, why don't you go home and pray every day about this decision and ask the Lord if he really wants you in this fellowship. He didn't see her for several months. Finally, one day he was walking downtown and their paths crossed. He kind of coughed nervously and then asked, well, um, what have you decided? And she said, oh, I did exactly what you asked me to do. I went home and prayed every day. And one day while I was praying, the Lord said to me, Don't worry about not getting into that church. I've been trying to get in there for 20 years and I can't either. (laughs) Well, it is tragic, isn't it, when the church does in here what the world does out there? See, you're pigeonholed out there. Your value is based on what you happen to wear and what you drove to get there and how much you have in the bank and on and on and on. James says to them, stop doing that in here. Now, he not only condemns their sinful attitude, but he also challenges the fact that their thinking is contrary to the nature of the gospel. Look at verse 5. Listen, my beloved brethren. Now, note that he's speaking to believers. Listen, my beloved brethren. Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs to the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? Now, don't misunderstand like liberal theologians who say, well, all the poor are getting to heaven. He says it here. No, what he's effectively saying is that the gospel is available to the poor man, just like it's available to the rich man. God is no respecter of persons. In fact, the gospel of Christ's love is especially precious to the poor person who has nothing, isn't it? To someone who is considered without value. It's stunning to them to learn that they have eternal value value. They're amazed that the gospel levels the ground. Haven't you ever wondered why it is that when you share the gospel of Jesus Christ with a poor man or woman, they're more receptive immediately than the rich man? And James is telling them that they're not thinking correctly and contrary to the gospel. Just look at how the gospel is received is his, is his point. Even the historical movements of Christianity. I'm plowing through Spurgeon's biography, and it's interesting. I I, I thought everybody famous went to hear him. And yes, the queen did, and the prime minister, and many others. But his movement was classified as a movement among the workers. It was a blue-collar movement. Why is that? 
I had all week to think about it. Perhaps it's because the poor have little optimism that this life is going to offer any solution and they long already for a better ending. Maybe it's because the poor have no unrealistic sense of self-importance. Maybe it's because the poor person more immediately recognizes the good news in the gospel. Maybe it's because the poor have little, if anything, to hold them back from embracing Christ. Maybe it's because the poor anticipate with greater joy the thought of a future with a benevolent sovereign. Why not more wealthy? Perhaps it's because the rich are lured into believing that God is blessing them. They confuse financial security with spiritual security. The rich depend on themselves and look down on anything that's free. Maybe it's because the rich are interested in joining only those things that will enhance them and their reputation, not humble them. Maybe it's because the rich aren't intrigued by a heaven that promises much of what they already have. Maybe it's because having all their earthly needs met, they fail to consider their greatest need. But isn't it interesting that the Apostle Paul would, would speak of the church and he would say, Consider your calling, brethren. Not many wise, not many mighty, erudite, well-connected, powerful, not many noble, those of the rich and wealthy classes are called You got anybody important going to your church? In his newsletter, Leonard Ravenhill tells about a group of tourists visiting a picturesque village in England. They walked by an old man sitting beside a fence, and one of the tourists, in a rather patronizing way, asked him, Were any great men born in this village? The old man responded, No, just babies. I love the treatment of Eugene Peterson as he paraphrases this text that I read from 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 31. He says, take a good look, friends. I don't see many of the brightest and best among you. Not many influential. Not many from high society. Isn't it obvious that God chose men and women that our culture overlooks and exploits and abuses? Chose these nobodies to expose the hollow pretensions of the somebodies for everything that we have, right thinking, right living, a clean slate, and a fresh start comes from God by way of Jesus Christ, who was, by the way, a poor man. There was nothing about him that we would have esteemed. So how dare we treat people differently than Jesus Christ treated them? How would we have treated him? How can we look down our noses at nobodies when they happen to be God's favorite flavor? Are we in agreement with the gospel or not? And do we demonstrate it, even in the assembly, while younger Christians watch us? Younger people, if you could climb back into this scenario at this church service, if you're sitting there and you're a younger Christian, this is why it's injurious. If you're a younger person, you might watch this. Oh, he got seated there. Oh, that guy in the back. And you might come away with some wrong conclusions. You you might assume that the rich man must be more important to the church than the poor man. You might conclude that God likes this guy better because he made him rich. Or that maybe God doesn't like poor people because the church obviously doesn't either. Or maybe poor people deserve to sit on the floor. Or it looks like money does talk even in there. See, all the above could be learned in one morning service in the seating of two men in this manner. And the congregation learns just a little better how to play the role of snob and receive people because of their faith rather than their faith. James also goes on in the summary to say your favoritism doesn't even make logical sense. I mean, it's hard for us to climb back in here, but this was so offensive. This was so confrontive. 
And now he even, he even goes one step further. Verse 6, look there. You've dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? In other words, what in the world are you thinking? You're fawning on Sunday over the very person who may drag you into court on Monday. In the first century, there was the legal custom called summary arrest. If a creditor met a debtor on the street, he could seize him by the collar of his robe and literally drag him into court. And oftentimes the wealthy then were able to use their influences in property disputes, in gaining what they could from the poor because the poor couldn't afford representation. And Roman law pandered toward those who could be represented by the best. And that is the foundation of our own legal system and all of its warts and blessings. Again, James is not condemning the rich for having that kind of connection. He's condemning them for using it to gain advantage over the poor. We recently saw that in Beijing, which ordered the bulldozing and dismantling of hundreds of homes of poor people to make room for Olympic buildings. They had no voice. Quickly, James goes on to add one more reason. Partiality is sinful. Verse 7 tells us, Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you've been called? I mean, these are the unbelievers. And not only that, they are the scoffers. They are the mockers. They are those who blaspheme. So when the church kowtows to them, they are effectively forging friendships with blasphemers. I read a lot more than I'm able to share with you, but I'll, as a, just as a sidebar, give you this one, one, one note. I was reading one author who was talking about people who came to see Nixon, and he served in the, in the, in the, Oval, in the White House, and he was in charge of, of traffic. And uh, he went on to talk about it. He was a believer. He talked about those years, and he, and, he, and he would talk about people in the lobby who were infuriated with Nixon. Some policy, some issue, just really angry. Just wait till I get in there. They would be lions in the lobby, he wrote, and lambs in the Oval Office. He said it was remarkable to watch them as they came in, and as soon as they were in the presence of the most powerful man in America, they wilted. They forgot their arguments. If they brought up anything negative, it would be with an apology. They would find themselves agreeing with the president, shake his hand, be thankful he saw them, and leave. And then this author went on to say, the group that did that the most of any group were those who were religious leaders. James writes, they are blaspheming the fair name of our Lord by which you have been called, and you're honoring them. You're honoring those who dishonor the Father. In fact, the phrase translated, by which you have been called, is the same Greek word used for a woman taking the name of her husband in marriage. You've taken the name of Christ. He's your bridegroom. You're his bride. Are you going to pander after? Are you going to fuss over someone in the assembly who blasphemes the name of your bridegroom? Will you give the chief seed of honor to someone who will dishonor the Lord's name and reputation? James would say, how wrong is that? See, if you go back to verse 1, He hints again at why favoritism and partiality are especially sinful. Go back there and we'll wrap this up. He says, my brethren, don't hold your faith in whom? In our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, we have come in here and and we as an assembly in this unique manner of worship are in the presence of our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. You could translate it. Our Lord Jesus Christ, who is glory. Doxa is the word, which gives us our word, the doxology. He is the glory of God, a reference many believe to the Shekinah glory, the demonstration on earth of God's glory in heaven. It's the idea. 
Isaiah prophesied, the glory of the Lord will be revealed. Isaiah 40, verse 5. Paul wrote to Titus, we have this hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. Titus 2, 13. This is the glory of Christ. The bright, shining, Shekinah glory. And we have assembled here in the presence of Jesus Christ who is glory. Shekinah glory is his thought. And here's the point. This is the point. When when you think about coming in here, in his presence, we are all shabby. Compared to his holiness, we are all dirty. Compared to the glory and security of his eternal home, we are all homeless. We're all clay pots. And how do you act like a snob? Oh, but the glory of Christ in his gospel is this. Though we are shabby compared to him, he has now made us saints. Though we are dirty daily, we have been made clean through Christ's atonement. We understand forgiveness. Though hopeless, we've been granted a future and a hope. Though homeless... We've been now given equal standing and an equal inheritance together as sons and daughters of the king. Though clay pots, he has chosen to pour into us the treasure of his gospel, which he wants us, if we are willing to grow up, to pour out on others. We are not to be snobs. We are to be spigots of grace. I'll never forget a mechanic who was working on my truck years ago, my original F-150 given to me by my father-in-law, who worked on a Ford assembly line. That was the first F-150. I'm on my fourth one now, fourth pickup. I had two Chevys in there as I backslid. He was working on my truck in his backyard. He was a backyard mechanic. He was the guy I could afford. And while he worked on my truck, I was working on him. I had a couple hours. He could go nowhere. I was paying him to listen. Telling him about the church, the gospel, Christ, the Lord, my own testimony. And never forget, his name was D'Angelo. And at one point, he pulled his head out from underneath the hood of the truck, and he said, you know, I work late on Saturday nights. To make ends meet. This is my other job. And, and, and many times I'm working early on Sunday morning. And then he looked at me and he asked me a question. He said, do you think it'd be okay if I came to your church with grease on my hands? And the answer, church, is yes. yes. Absolutely. It's a demonstration that we have taken the education of our world and we have left it out there. And we have a reformed culture in here. In fact, I had a lady come up to me and she said, our first service, we came here from California and we'd been visiting around. She said, we sat on the very back row and in front of us was a guy who had his arm around his wife and he had grease under his fingernails, it was obvious he was a mechanic, and she leaned over to her husband and she said, look at that. This is the place for us. Come join this collection of clay pots. You're welcome to join the assembly of nobodies, as Jim Elliott put it so well, the missionary to the Aka Indians. We are nobodies attempting to exalt somebody who is our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I pray that even though James has given us a scenario and we have used a number of illustrations, that your spirit would pinpoint in our own hearts evil motives, snobbery, Maybe it's even in the way we'll treat that waitress today, that clerk, that gas station attendant, 
that coworker, that neighbor. One of the distinctives of the believer, according to James, your servant, Lord, is that we have come under the tutelage of a different educator. And we're beginning to think differently and live distinctively. Help me to not be a snob and everyone in here the same. Cause us to demonstrate the grace of you, our Lord, toward us. And how you condescended to love me and those who know you in this assembly. And my friend, if you don't know Christ Jesus as your glorious Lord and Savior, don't leave this place. You understand and know by the grace of God what it means to become a son or daughter of God the Father. We have come here today, Father, to ultimately praise you. Thank you for the privilege. Thank you for the privilege of this assembly. I pray that this lesson will be reflected in the way we walk out of here toward each other, the way we drive out of the parking lot, the way we communicate throughout the week, serving you, serving this body, and in our community. As our benediction, let's close by singing the doxology. Praise God.